0: Caution. The contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffee House Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffee House Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa.
1: And I'm Allison.
0: Today we are visiting, as we so often do, Germany to look in on a composer named Max Bruch. As we'll see, he is simultaneously one of the most famous composers, yet also completely obscure.
1: Max Bruch was born in 1838 in Cologne, Prussia. His mother was a singer, which is likely his gateway into the music world. He began to write music from an early age, and he demonstrated an incredible knowledge of the musical style for the time, i.e. early German Romanticism. The first known piece of music he composed appears to have been a birthday song for his mother. In
0: 1852, when Bruch was 14, he had really begun to take his composition seriously. His works were frequently performed in the Bruch home for little social gatherings. A friend of the family and composer, Ferdinand Hiller, was very taken by Bruch's works, notably a string quartet. And as a professor at the Cologne Conservatory, Hiller was able to make recommendations for students to receive scholarships to the school. As such, Bruch was awarded the Frankfurt Mozart Foundation Prize and began taking classes with Hiller as well as piano with Karl Reinecke.
1: Brooke was at the conservatory for a number of years before he published his first work. This work was actually an opera called Jest, Cunning, and Revenge, based on the works of Goté. This work was actually quite successful when it first premiered, and subsequent operas and choral works written by Brooke were also hits.
0: All was set for Brooks to be a major name in the world of music, both during his life and after. However, he had some fatal flaws related to his musical style. His teachers at the relatively new Cologne Conservatory were slightly old-fashioned already, and Bruch himself was not very appreciative of change. As such, his style, though perfectly suited for the mid-1800s, did not evolve into the later 1800s. He was soon eclipsed in fame by contemporaries such as Brahms, who showed remarkable innovation throughout his career. Nonetheless, Bruch is still remembered for a few works— Notably, his violin concerto is one of the top played violin concertos in the repertoire, along with his Scottish fantasy for violin. His eight pieces for clarinet, viola, and piano is also a favorite in chamber settings, due to the unique instrumentation. There's not much else for clarinet and viola friends to play together, so every bit of that niche repertoire is found and loved.
1: Sadly for Bruch, his violin concerto was published in 1868 when he was only 30 years old and still kind of new to this whole publishing thing. And he had agreed to a lump sum payment when the work was published. Little did he know how successful it would be and therefore last out on millions of royalties during his life from sales of the piece. In spite of his rather old-fashioned musical ideals, Bruch still was well respected in the musical world. One of his operas, De Lorele, was admired by Clara Schumann, and he was often invited to give masterclasses at the most prestigious Hoch Conservatory. Through this endeavor, Bruch became a teacher and major influence on the young Rasfigi, who would later make waves with his medieval-themed modern music, and von Williams, who was a major figure in modern British music.
0: Bruch also served as a conductor in various locations in Germany, as well as a two-year stint in Liverpool, England, where he was offered an honorary doctorate from Oxford University. Eventually, he settled in Berlin as a permanent professor of composition at the Hoch Conservatory, a position he would hold until 1910 when he retired.
1: At this point, new genres of music had been popping up. Audiences were getting fired up about such composers as Stravinsky and Schoenberg, and Debussy and his French bunch were expanding horizons with Impressionism. It was a changing musical world where boundaries were being pushed, but Bruck decided to remain safely in the middle of the box.
0: But he still composed even after his retirement. Even if his music wasn't cutting edge, that didn't mean people still didn't like it. He was an artistic master, and his works deserve listening. He composed right up until his death in 1920. As mentioned before, there are only a few of Bruch's works that are regularly played today, ones that have been put up on the metaphorical pedestal, while his others have been allowed to fall by the wayside.
1: But in our modern era, while we still enjoy good performances of Bach, Mozart, and Mendelssohn, and all the numerous others who have been dead for hundreds of years why shouldn't we dig up Brooks' other works and let them be heard? At this point, a majority of the music heard in concert halls is, quote, old. And hearing Brooks' symphonies, rather than, for example, just another Beethoven symphony, would be viewed as something, quote, new to our modern audience's ears. It never hurts to expand the musical canon, and Brooks' excellent and charming romantic writing would fit right in with any current season lineup.
0: That being said, We're now going to delve into one of Bruch's accepted masterpieces, the eight pieces for clarinet, viola, and piano. And we're going to show you that his style is accessible and quite lovely. Listening to this piece, you do genuinely get the sense of the early German Romantic period, with echoes of Brahms and Schumann. You wouldn't initially think this piece was written in 1909, for context, this is a year before Stravinsky's Firebird premiered, and a year before both Vaughn Williams' A Sea Symphony and Fantasia on a Theme of Thomas Tallis came out, heralding in an entirely new era of music.
1: Some similar-sounding works to these eight pieces could be cited as Brahms' clarinet trio that was written almost two decades earlier, and Schumann's Fairy Tale narrations for clarinet trio that was written in the 1850s. So, if you're looking for a piece that really embodies the the turn-of-the-century cutting-edge style, this piece is not it. But, if you're looking for a great study on the middle-to-late German romantics, this piece is a great exhibit of that style.
0: Bruch had written these pieces for his son, who was a wonderful clarinetist to play. Even though they were published as a collection of eight pieces together, Bruch did not write them with the intention of being played in a particular order, or even all of them being played at once. Often, selections from the collection are chosen based on what a given ensemble is looking for in their concert. Today at the Coffee House, we have chosen to look at pieces 6 and 7, which are both lovely and contrasting.
1: This first piece is a nocturne. The style of music originally meant to portray the feelings of nighttime like peace, tranquility, and quiet. By the late classical era, it had morphed into being a quiet and fluttery-sounding piece. Traditionally, a nocturne has expansive arpeggios in the bass that denote the harmony. Instead of being large, weighty chords, they allow the piece to feel light and sparse. Brooke embraces this stylistic quality as we hear the piano playing predominantly arpeggios throughout the piece.
0: One of the first hints we get that this piece is Brahmsian in nature is the use of triplets over eighth notes. Brahms loved to confuse the bar line and meters in his works, and he frequently put in triplets where the meter had previously suggested duples. The piano has running sixteenth notes, but the clarinet jauntily marches on with triplet pickups. Another compositional technique, commonly found in Romantic chamber music, is the use of several instruments playing mostly in unison.
1: Brooke does that here, with the clarinet and viola playing the same rhythms in the same octaves, but a third apart to create harmony. However, they are written relatively equally, so at first listen, it's hard to tell which instrument actually has the melody and which has the harmony. But hint, it's the clarinet.
0: As we always say, it just wouldn't be the German romantics without a string of their beloved diminished chords modulating to an apex of a phrase followed by an improvisatory downward flourish. That is something exactly that we say all the time. Bruch has in fact provided such a passage right here.
1: Of course, we're not saying that since Brook's style didn't evolve, that it's boring. We've always expounded on the ways that the Middle Romantic era was not boring. As such, a main feature of the piano accompaniment in Brooke's writing is chromatics, and he's brave enough to throw it in right at the end of the piece. In this last iteration of the piano bass line under the syncopated viola, he has a little chromatic moment from E to E flat to D which just piques the ears of the listeners right before the lovely tonic chords.
0: The next piece, the seventh, starts out nice and jaunty. The piano plays what is almost a fanfare and sounds like it could be the introduction to any romantic sonata. We soon get a lovely stylistic contrast where the clarinet and then viola play longer, smoother notes over top of the more staccato triplets of the piano. This type of floating note contrast is an incredibly common technique, and not just in the Romantic era. However, we do often see it in Romantic chamber music because it just sounds so good.
1: Rook does a really lovely job of having the instruments in the ensemble trade off bits of the melody. In this instance, he has the clarinet and piano passing eighth notes back and forth. has done a wonderful job matching the timbres of the two instruments by picking a register that sounds sort of bell-like in both instruments and where they can achieve a similar articulation style and note length. So, he plays a really good trick on the listener, unless you're listening closely.
0: Toward the end of the piece, Bruch does what a good romantic should do, which is lead up to a grand finale. He does this through the use of dramatic trills in the clarinet and viola, with triumphantly raising arpeggios in the piano. Then he reiterates the beginning of the piece's theme, but allows it to resolve each time rather than go to the next part, a classic romantic technique that Bruch has
1: perfected. Brooke surprises us, sort of. He allows all the upward momentum to kind of fall back a little bit. Are we really coming to the end as we thought we were? However, we are not too fooled by this, as it's another classic romantic ploy to draw us back into the music in case we had lost interest or predicted too much what was coming up. But Brooke doesn't let us end on a quiet note. He brings back the theme in several octaves in all its glory and ends with a very satisfying five-to-one perfect authentic cadence.
0: As you can hear, Bruce's music, even his very late works, are lovely representations of the Romantic era. It's almost amazing that he was able to continue to produce high-quality middle Romantic works well into the 1900s and not be forced or bothered to try out any new techniques.
1: If you ever see a brook work on a program, we urge you to definitely check it out, as you won't be disappointed by the quality of the writing.
0: And if you see one of your friends, we definitely urge them to check out episodes of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. And if you enjoy this show, you can also leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. For the Coffeehouse, I'm Asa.
1: And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. Pieces six and seven from eight pieces for clarinet, viola, and piano were performed by Ben Redwine, Betty Hawk, and Carl Banner. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.